This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now on The Law School Show. Hey Law School Show listeners, this is Janet and I got a chance to chat with longtime family law lawyer, Joel Miller. Joel has over 40 years of family law experience. He was a partner and the family law chair of Ricketts Harris LLP. He still acts as counsel there, but is also the lawyer behind the family law coach. Over the years, he noticed the significant growth of self-reps in family court who had good cases but lost 73% of the time when facing a lawyer on the other side. He helps to level the playing field by providing self-reps with cost-effective, accessible, and transparent family law help in the form of legal coaching. So, Joel, how would you describe yourself without talking about the law? I think it's safe to say that I'm a a very old family law practitioner who's been doing this uh, for 48 years, and I have managed to avoid an ulcer and to have uh, a family, three lovely kids and five lovely grandsons. And uh, I think the trick is to end up having done a lot of family law and still remaining uh, sane and reasonably pleasant. So I think I've, I think I've accomplished that. And um, how would you describe your legal career uh, journey before the family law coach? So how did you end up in family law? What law school did you go to, et cetera? So I went to U of T Law School. And uh, when I graduated in 19, when I got called to the bar in 1970, there really was no family law bar. Those of us who did any family law fitted it into a practice that we were doing a little bit of criminal, a little bit of uh, civil, a little bit of uh, personal injury, a little bit of family law. And it wasn't so much a distinct field, but it was beginning to become an area that a few lawyers, a couple of senior lawyers, and then a couple of younger lawyers began to hone in on and do exclusively. So I found in my early years, I would be doing uh, personal injury, uh, civil and family. And then as time went on, noticed that I was doing less civil and less personal injury and more family. And it's like one of those things, uh, like a snowball. If you start rolling down a certain side of the hill, you just begin growing in that particular direction. What was really interesting is that in my year, early on, there were a lot of people doing the kind of dabbling that I was doing. Uh, And then as we progressed, it became a curious thing that fewer and fewer of us were continuing to do family law as we got a little bit further on in our practices. And it sort of, I don't know, I would say after maybe eight or nine, 10 years, sort of turned around and you said, holy smokes, of all of us that were dabbling in family law, there's just a relatively small handful that are continuing. And I think the distinction is we were the ones who didn't get ulcers. So we were able to uh, (laughs) continue on. And I was very fortunate because that was at a time when legal aid said it was widely available so that uh, if you were interested in family law, you could be in court three, four times a week. Uh, You were always there on motions. There were in those days uh, discoveries, which we now call questioning. But in earlier days, uh, questioning discoveries were automatic. So in every matter, there were discoveries, which also helped hone your skills, develop skills 
in learning what pieces of information you needed from the other side in order to build and support your case. So that whole aspect of questioning uh, was valuable. The point is that if legal aid was covering the cost, it wasn't, how should I put it? We were able to be very, very active without having to find clients who could afford us, if I could put it that way. So uh, jumping off of that, how has access to justice issues uh, changed throughout your decades of practice? We were able to do family law in a way that was reasonably affordable to a wide range of people. So we didn't have the kind of access to justice gap that exists today, or at least if there was, I don't think any of us saw it, because if you didn't get legal aid, uh, we were young, we were energetic, there were not, this was not a field in which there, there in which it was dense with senior family law lawyers. Uh, there just weren't a lot of senior ones. So uh, we were all able to be reasonably price competitive, if I can put it that way. Some of us you know, began to emerge as being what we would now call specialists, but there was a wide range of others. So we were reasonably affordable. As time went on, this is a we'll have to come back to this in a different uh, from a different perspective but lawyers who uh, live in an hourly billing practice tend to increase their rate based upon the number of years of uh, practice and the the logic of course is that uh, i'm more experienced now that i've been out uh, eight years than you are who's only been out five years and therefore i should have a higher rate that's the theory that that's absolutely not true in reality because so many younger people would be much more vigorous or more in touch with the law or more enthusiastic and would be doing a better job than the uh, more senior lawyers who had been in those days there wasn't compulsory legal education uh, so the idea that just because you were out longer justified a higher rate made sense to lawyers, but not so much as a value proposition to uh, consumers, if I can put it that way. So what began to happen is that uh, we began to feel that we deserved more money. We valued our services more highly. So we began to charge more. And as we began to charge more, we began to create the gap in access, which has reached the point that it is, uh, that it is today. So, so that, that clearly, I don't want to speak poorly of my own profession, but I think uh, we valued ourselves so highly that we began to price ourselves out of reach for a lot of people. Since there weren't that many family law lawyers, as we began to narrow the pool that we were servicing because of the fee we were charging, there still were enough of the people in that pool to keep us busy. So we tended not to see that we were walking away from more and more people. And so in contrast to that mindset or that model, how would you describe the family law coach and what inspired you to start it? I was at a point where the reality is that I I loved doing family law. I've always loved doing family law and loved doing it right up to the end. So it's not as if to escape it. Happily for me, and it was one of these serendipitous things that 
you know, happens. It wasn't deliberate or the result of uh, research, but I came across the National Family Law Self-Represented Litigants Project Report shortly after it had come out, and or about a year or so after it had come out. And I recall uh, reading it idly, just uh, almost aimlessly. I'd read a press release and uh, I thought I would take a look at the report. And I saw, holy smokes, there's an awful lot of people out there who aren't being serviced by family law lawyers. I, I would go to court, but I would only see my professional colleagues. We would chat over this side of the room. I would talk to my clients. It never really crossed my mind that there were twice as many people at the other side of the waiting room as where I was standing. I just never really saw them, never paid attention to them. If I had a self-rep on the other side, they were more a nuisance. And whenever uh, I heard about them, capital T. It was in the context of you have to watch your back, paper your file, see self-rep as a potential negligence claim. I mean, they were just the evil unwashed that you had nothing to do with. So I read this report and I said, holy smokes, that's not who these people are. And the report did a fabulous job. And there have been other reports as well, Nick Bella from Queens and uh, Rachel Bierbaum. There have been a number of Canadian reports that are outstanding that described who self-represented litigants were. And the more I looked at it, I said, holy smokes, these are my neighbors. These are my children. These are me. I looked at that and I said, boy, oh boy, this is a great description of who these people are and of what their problems are and what their complaints are about the system and what the frailties of the system are. I can't wait to get to the last chapter to see what the solution is. And you're in law school right now. One of the things that we're trained as lawyers is uh, we are, we're solution providers. Our, our job is to help people with a problem find a solution to their problem. So we're very solution-oriented. People would pay me. At that point, I was uh, $650 an hour, and people were paying me that outrageous amount of money because they believed that I was going to be able to provide some kind of solution. I, I believed. I mean, that was the whole myth. So uh, I come to the end of the report and noticed that eventually the conclusion is, and as a result of all of this, somebody needs to do something. And then when I read a couple of other reports, because I was curious, so what is it people are doing? I kept seeing this, and as a result of this, you should do something. Uh, the profession should do something. This is a problem that the bar has to solve. And I found that, I'll say, surprising because I'd lived a life surrounded by people who worked towards solutions. So I began to look around, and I was stunned, frankly, to see that the problem was replicated throughout the English-speaking world, the States, New Zealand, Australia, Britain but that there didn't seem to be any potential solutions. So this came at a time when I was going to be stepping out of the formal infrastructure of a practice. I, I was uh, chair of the family law group at uh, Ricketts Harris. I was a, a senior partner there, and I was now going to be stepping out of that and looking to out of a home office kind of a practice. So with all of that in mind, I began to shift my attention from what it was that we could or should do to what it was that a user of the system would want and uh, could afford. So if I took a look at what their complaints were, as opposed to 
looking at it from my perspective. I looked at it from a user perspective, a user of the family law system. And I looked at these reports, which are so beautiful in terms of what their friction points, what their grievances, uh, what their problems uh, with the system were. Uh, what would I want from a legal service provider that I could afford that would be helpful to me? And that was sort of a... Um, that paradigm shift was, for me at least, startling because the minute I began to look at things from the consumer end, uh, the whole issue of uh, value, the value proposition, shifted. Uh, so instead of me as a lawyer saying, you bring me your problem, uh, you bring me your purse, and I'll provide you with a solution at a cost that I think I'm worth, because I say I'm worth $425 an hour or $450 an hour. I mean, in the real world, is there any possible difference between $375 an hour or $450 an hour? I mean, th these are not imaginable figures, especially for someone who's making, you know, $35 an hour. It's, it's just lawyers talk amongst ourselves. So if instead of me saying how much I'm worth, I asked, what would it be worth to me as a user to get the services of a lawyer? That caused me to look at things from a different perspective. And from that perspective, I fell into the concept of selling time rather than tasks. Traditionally, lawyers would say you can't have a flat fee because you don't know what's going to be involved. You don't know the complications. You don't know what information uh, your client is or isn't giving you. You don't know what the other side is going to uh, spring on you. Uh, there are so many things you don't know that you're, you're foolish to give a flat fee because you just don't know what the cost of delivering that task will be. But if you shift the question to uh, time rather than, rather than task, then you can be precise. So you could sell an hour of finite figure, and then it's up to the consumer to say, this hour at this price either has or has not been of value to me. And if it has been of value to me, is it of sufficient value that I want to buy another unit? And the minute I sort of stumbled into that, began to have a lot of power because of the following. Gave, gave to the consumer, the user, a level of a level of control, but a level of respect, because I was saying to the user, I think I can be of value to you, but you're going to be the person telling me if you think this time is worth it. And we're going to be partners in this because the degree of value that I can give to you is going to be contingent upon the degree of fullness, accuracy, of information you're giving to me. So we're sort of this sort of mutual exchange. I found that has, giving clients that kind of control has been really quite dramatic and extraordinarily satisfying to clients and beneficial. And what the surprise, and this is everything I've said up to this point, you could have picked out from the various reports. I mean, you could say, oh yeah, okay, I can see how this would resonate with what they were saying. No one was suggesting it, but I could see how this would come out of it. But one thing that did not come from the reports is the following. So I, I constructed 15 minutes for $95, an hour for $350, and two hours for $600. And each of those, the person could extend the time. And what I discovered was that if I offered something at those lower 
finite rates where there was no fear of going to a lawyer's office and then turning around and getting a bill for $750 when I just thought I was chatting with the lawyer. When people knew in advance what the cost was going to be, they then became sufficiently aware of the value to them of continuing that people who would never have gone to a lawyer uh, end up on average, people end up on average spending uh, five and a half or more hours uh, time with me, but they never ever would have thought that they would have been willing to commit to that much because they have such an aversion to lawyers, such a distaste for lawyers and so on and so forth. So having bumbled bumbled my way into this theory, I developed what's called a three-pillar service, a, a, a predefined service, so you know what you're getting before you buy, at a preset fee, at a fixed fee, so you know how it's going to cost before you make the commitment. And I coupled that with providing the service exclusively remotely. So only deal with people by phone, email, through the computer, uh, so they don't have to come to see me, travel, they don't have to get, take time off work, they don't have to get Childcare, they can call from the hockey arena during practice. So the minute I constructed a practice that was designed to suit or to more, to better suit the needs of the user, the more comfortable I became with the idea of the family law coach. And that's, that's, those are the underlying principles that, uh, that, I'm, that I'm following and that anybody can follow. There's no magic to what I do. Uh, when I say no magic, there, there's, there's nothing proprietary to what I do. Anybody can uh, do what I do. And I encourage people to do what I do. But this is all related to the other side of access to justice is unbundled services. So the question is how to have a clear understanding of uh, unbundled services. And uh, soon that brings us to a conversation about coaching. So... (laughs) And have you found since you've launched the Family Law Coach that the public is very responsive to this new model? Um, it's it's funny because with other industries, with other services and businesses, there's a huge focus on making sure that it's convenient and effective for the consumer. And uh, it just seems like the law is catching up now. Right. So, so we start with a, a, a. There's really two pieces to your question. I'll, I'll deal with the second one uh, first. Um, for many reasons, much of which are not flattering uh, to lawyers, we have constructed a vision of ourselves that we've been able to enforce because we have a very strong uh, union. We've got legislation that says, hi, if you're not one of us, you can't do what we do. And uh, not only that, uh, we're the ones who define what we do so that we can make sure that almost anything we want is something that's part of our monopoly. And, And as a result, we don't have to, we have no outside forces that's not quite correct. Until recently, there have been no outside forces pushing us to develop a cheaper car, if I can put it that way. So so we've been manufacturing BMWs, Lexuses, uh, Mercedes, because we're really great car manufacturers and we're the only ones who can make cars. And so long as the only cars we sell start at, you know, $48,000, I don't have to worry. You either buy a car or a bicycle. It's, it's, just, it's as simple as that uh, because there's nobody who's saying, holy smokes, I can make a car for $32,000. And we just keep them out of our union, those people. More recently, the commercial lawyers have 
been encountering uh, large business clients who said, I'm not comfortable with that anymore. Last year, we spent $12 million for all of our legal outsourcing services, for litigation, our lease work, our drafting, etc. We'll let you do all of our business for $8 million. So now companies are saying, huh, we were only doing a, a two or three of their $12 million worth of business. We can get all of their business for $8 million. Is there a way we can do that economically? So those lawyers have begun to look at uh, efficiencies within their practices. In family law, we really have not asked the question, is there a way that we deliver what we provide in a more economical fashion and in a more efficient way to people who want what we provide? We, we haven't really asked that. So with the advent of unbundled services, people in family law in particular have begun to ask if people can't afford me to take over their matter, can they afford me to do this or that particular piece for them by way of an unbundled service? And I can just charge for that. So we've be begun to commoditize in family law what we do. Now this is, I'll say this, when I say begun, I think this is only modest, but we have begun to commoditize what we do. And there are an increasing number of lawyers, far from the majority, who are open to helping a client for this, that, or the other particular task. And that is, uh, that's been great. But for many of them, not all, but for many of them, they bring the hourly rate concept to that task as well. So that if they say, I'll prepare the affidavit for your motion, uh, and you argue the motion, they still can't answer the question, how much will it cost me until they get to the end? Well, I, I'm going to have to read all of the uh, previous documents. Uh, I, I'm not certain how many other how many other affidavits there are. I'm going to have to take a look at what the other side says. I'm going to have to uh, ask you uh, questions, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but I can tell you this, I'll only charge you so much an hour. Now, there are some lawyers, and uh, I absolutely applaud them. This is uh, terrific, who are saying, I, I cannot tell you what the cost will be, but I will put a cap on my fee. And I'm going to say it will be no more than $2,000. I'll deliver this affidavit to you for no more than $2,000. It takes me less. I'll only charge you less. But if it costs me more than $2,000, I'm capping it at two. So you don't have to worry about the overrun. So, so capping fees is something that lawyers are beginning to do. The only danger with that is that a prudent business person wants to cap the fee at a high enough number that they're not going to be constantly losing money. You can't stay in business if you're constantly losing money. But if you cap a fee at the beginning at a high number, you are going to scare away a lot of litigants who say, well, geez, I can't, I can't afford $3,500. And then you say, well, it's probably not going to cost you $3,500. You, you get into a funny conversation. But in any event, capping fees is one terrific thing. And then, and, and I know that there are people who are doing that. And there are also people who are meeting with a client and saying, tell me what you want, bring all the papers with you. So it's all spread out on the table. Okay. I will give you a flat fee of X because I spoken with you for half an hour. I've uh, looked at the material. I'm prepared to give you a flat fee of, of X. If it costs me less, if I can do it less time, more efficiently, good for me. If it takes me more, 
good for you, but I'm going to stick with the fee. So there are people who are doing that. And that that's a flat fee for a task. And I say absolutely great to that. But the problem is in the definition of an unbundled service. And uh, it was such a, an interesting thing when the concept came about. First of all, lawyers have been doing piecework all the way along, but not in litigation. So when we came to defining unbundled services, and I should also say this, lawyers have been doing unbundled services for generations. If you uh, look at it from the perspective of, oh, does this mean you can't afford me any longer? Well, in that case, I'll just deliver up to this point and you take it from that point forward. So very often it becomes unbundled by uh, because the client just runs out of runs out of money. But an unbundled service is, is defined as being part but not all of a full service. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I have discovered and there's no there's no brilliance to, to this either, that people don't want a piece but not all of a traditional full service. What they want is the ability to handle their matter on their own once they're no longer paying for your for your service. So that is sort of teaching individual clients how they can present their case. And that leads us directly into coaching. And coaching, I think, turns out to be more of what I do than anything else because people aren't so much looking for an affidavit for them to use on a motion as much as they are for an affidavit for them to use on a motion and to understand how to use it at the motion, what to say at the motion. You don't just stand up and read your affidavit. What do you do once you presented the affidavit at the motion. How do you use the thing that you purchased, this unbundled piece of something, how do you use that to be uh, effective and persuasive? And that's coaching. And coaching is something that we as lawyers never do. Uh, I'll tell you, my entire career, almost 50 years, I did a lot of coaching, but that was to coach junior lawyers in our office. Uh, someone would come in and I'd bring them to court and we'd uh, sit and I'd you know, on the walk back. I'd say, OK, now you saw that case before us. Which lawyer did you think was the most effective? Not, not who won, but who did you think was the most effective? Well, I thought she was great on this. I thought he was great on that. I like the way that she handled this. I like the way that he handled that. That's the coaching that senior lawyers give to junior lawyers. But we never give that. That's not a part of the full service that we give to clients. So the whole idea of unbundled service is more restrictive than fulsome. And coaching is, I think, what where tomorrow's world is going to be going to be. It's, it's a direction that tomorrow's world is going to be moving towards. Do you need to have a lot of experience in order to go into coaching? I don't really believe that a person can be an effective family law legal coach without them having had genuine courtroom experience, absolutely contested motions and trials. And it's not until you lose two or three that you can figure out why you lost this motion. Sometimes you lost it because you should lose it. I mean, let's face it, what's fair is fair. Um, sometimes you win because no matter how badly you're doing, the facts are destined for you to win. But very often we lose a motion that we, in retrospect, should have won, or we win a motion 
that in retrospect, we really should have lost. Uh, and the question is why? What was the skill of the other lawyer? What was the skill that I employed? How did that result happen? So it's not until you've done enough that you can analyze and assess what you're doing that I see a person being able to provide legal coaching. So to a curious degree, lawyering is, I'll say, easier for a young lawyer than coaching because in the lawyering, you're doing it and hopefully in a very short period of time, you begin to develop a bit of your own personal style and approach, but you've not yet reached the depth of experience where you can pass on helpful information to somebody whose language is limited, whose um, uh, strategic thinking is limited, whose uh, anger is uh, overpowering their thinking, who who, uh, who's, who can't get away from the feeling of needing to be revenged, feeling victimized. So it takes a while before you can understand how to pass helpful, productive tips, if I can put it that way. Uh, to people until you yourself have experienced a lot of that. So for young lawyers, I, I would say focus on lawyering rather than coaching. And one way that you do that is to simply go to the local courthouse and sit in the courtroom and watch uh, the lawyers present the cases. And you'll be impressed, by the way. I mean, uh, a bright young law school graduate will be impressed by how unimpressed they are with uh, a lot of senior lawyers. You'll look at a lot of lawyers and say, holy smokes, that wasn't a very impressive kind of thing. I could do better than that. And and the chances are you could do better than that. I mean, you know, so, but the minute you start looking and watching and seeing how you could do better or how they did something that you did not anticipate, the, the more you, you watch, the more you develop the kind of experience that I'm talking about if you if you're unable to actually get motions yourself so coaching is i think something that has to be secondary i think the person should be doing uh, should have at least two three years of uh, actual family law litigation for before they start coaching so some lawyers worry about you know uh, unbundled services or legal coaching due to the perception of a higher risk of liability do you find this is actually the case, especially with a new model like legal coaching? Um, how would uh, liability factor into practice? So there's uh, two statistics I'm going to pass on to you. Uh, uh, there was a study done for uh, Justice Boncalo on her family law review. It was a limited study, very briefly done, and the participants were pretty much self-selected uh, lawyers. And it was um, directed to lawyers who either do or are thinking about providing limited scope retainers, unbundled services. So it was focusing on, on, on people who already were sort of uh, open to the idea. And 76% of them said that they uh, th th their biggest concern was liability. So the question you ask is a burning question in the minds of the vast majority of lawyers and in particular of those who are toying with the idea of doing unbundled services, limited scope retainers, but may not yet have done it. The other statistic is I was at a conference in Denver in November and one of the officials from Colorado was saying that they did a survey of complaints to, about lawyering. And of 10,000 complaints, 
they had a total of 10 that dealt with lawyers offering unbundled services. Of the 10, seven came from other lawyers and other clients. So there were a total of three out of 10,000 that related to the nature of the service provided by the lawyer offering the unbundled service, none of which, none of those three, rose to the level of any action by their, uh, not the law society, but by the the commission that looked after it. And that accords with what legal insurers are uh, finding, which is that there's significantly reduced complaints related to unbundled services compared to uh, traditional services. And there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of reasons for that. The first reason is, I won't say the first, but one reason is uh, an unbundled service is typically discreet. It's a specific thing. The client and the lawyer know in advance what they're talking about. Uh, the lawyer delivers that service. It's easier for the lawyer to live up to the client's expectation because the expectation has been focused in advance. It's not just, hi, here's my problem, I wanna win. It's rather, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? That's one piece of it. Another piece of it is typically because of the nature of an unbundled service, the fee for the task, or for the time in my case, is a lot less than the fee for a full service. So clients tend not to have as big a financial complaint available. Um, And the third thing is, this is my particular practice, but I think that more people are, more and more people are doing this. When I was in full-time practice, I used to hear from my other partners and the people who did commercial and civil litigation, whatever you do, make sure that you've got a full retainer and always replenish the retainer before you do anything else uh, so that you always got money on hand. And I knew that. And I would say that to the younger family law lawyers. But the truth was that I never did it. Uh, uh, you know, I, someone would come up with $5,000. I'd spend $6,000 worth of time. I'd send them an account for $6,000. I'd give them credit for the $5,000. They'd have to send me 1000 It's not as if I said to them, send me $6,000 and we'll keep the $5,000 in, in trust, which is what I should have done. But we just t- tend not to do it. And in family law, we tend not to do it. So the problem is in family law, you tend to build up receivables. In my practice, I get a credit card authorization before doing anything because you tell me what time you want to buy. I ask you if you want to continue. You say yes. And then I process the credit card as we go along. I tend not to have receivables. So a client doesn't get a bill for, let's say, $1,500 when they were thinking it was only going to cost them $500. And then they say, wait a second, thought it was going to cost me $500. Now it's cost me $1,500. And he's not yet finished what he was going to do. Oh, my God. Okay. So, so the nature of what people complain about is circumscribed and, you know, the underpinning to all of this is that you've got to provide full, proper, legitimate service to everybody. But so long as you're providing full service, the typical uh, negligence complaint is more lack of communication, lawyer doing something the client didn't anticipate. You know, those are things that tend not to happen this way. So that, no, a competent, unbundled practice 
yields statistically and anecdotally way fewer, way, way fewer complaints. To such an extent, uh, Janet, I'll pass this on to you. I mean, this is a sort of a weird thing. I actually offer a money-back guarantee. I know of no lawyer that does that. And it's, it's, I didn't do that at the beginning. I thought that would be madness. But it crossed my mind that people were so satisfied with the service they were getting and the fact that they had control over the cost lever that everybody was satisfied. So I could offer the guarantee because no one has claimed it. It's, it's prominent on the site. No one has ever claimed it. I don't anticipate anybody claiming it. If they do claim it, I'm happy to give it back. But it it's because I'm doing something, and again, other people can do this, so it's not as, uh, but carry out this sort of practice. The expectation of, my of what I'm delivering, my deliverable, is sufficiently clear at the beginning, and the value is sufficiently clear that people don't have complaints. But in a traditional practice, I come to you, and the odds are overwhelming that no matter how terrific a job you as a lawyer do, I'm going to want more. The rare family law case in which one side gets a 100% victory. So now let's keep in mind, if I get 87% victory, I can focus and complain about that 13% that I didn't get. So I'm, I'm unhappy about the 13% and I tend to forget that I got 87%. The other guy looks at their lawyer and they lost 87%. They only got 13%. So you take a look around here and you say, who's happy with their lawyer? You know, we walk back from court where we're happy with what we've done. <laughs> we walk back in the company of other lawyers who say, boy, you did a really great job there. Uh, but the client nevertheless is not happy. So you put all of that together, the risk of liability concerns is surprisingly and happily very, very low. Uh, so our final question, just to wrap up um, our time together, is um, where do you see family practice going in the next 10 years? Do you think uh, unbundled services, limited scope retainers, and legal coaching, um, that's really going to pick up speed and become a real fixture in the practice? Yes. I absolutely do. I'll tell you where the drag is on that impetus. I absolutely see it going in that direction. When we go to family law uh, continuing legal education courses, we tend to have sessions that help us become better lawyers for those who can afford us. And we are not yet at the point where the profession at large has become comfortable with a conversation about how to become better lawyers for people who cannot afford us. That creates a lag because if you're a, a drag on the impetus that you just described, because lawyers looking for practice go to sessions in which we live inside the myth who we used to be. And that's primarily because the people who are presenting are more established, experienced lawyers and they're not having difficulty getting paying clients. So they're talking about income trusts and, uh, you know, imputed income and uh, stock options and all these things, all of which are critically important for one segment of our user base. But it's that's by far the small that's the smaller end of the user base. And we're not yet focusing on the larger end of the user base. Uh, I think over the next few years, the people involved in legal education, hopefully will begin to shift the question from how do you protect yourself from dealing with self-reps to how can we as a profession uh, service those who currently can't afford us and still make a profit? Uh, because I think that's where the emerging field is. So 
on the one hand, there's going to be, I think, a uh, drag from the, if I could say, call it an, an institutional drag. Uh, but on the other hand, there is going to be an increasing number of uh, younger lawyers who are practicing and saying, wait a second, is there a better model? Can I make a living doing it a little bit differently than the, the way the older lawyer in my office is doing it? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. And I will give you a, a vision that I anticipate seeing over the next five, 10 years. Over the next five, 10 years, I would love to see law firms like this, three young lawyers and two lawyers who've been out a little bit longer, renting space on top of an industrial uh, facility. It's noisy downstairs and it's uh, absolutely not in a fancy uh, area where those five people are practicing to an awfully large extent remotely. Their overhead costs are way, way down. They're meeting people uh, at the courthouse. They're meeting people at the library. They're meeting people at coffee shops. They're not paying to have fancy uh, offices. They're doing work at home after the kids are in bed, uh, in between nursing. Uh, they're doing a lot of work uh, by telephone uh, and computer. So I think that there's a uh, role, small law, if I can put it that way, as opposed to big law, where there's a non-traditional approach to traditional practice and a non-traditional approach uh, to developing uh, novel ways of helping clients. So I, 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 I'm very optimistic. And in that model that I've just described, there's lots of room for young, young people. I don't see five first-year law students doing that, but I absolutely see space for uh, two or three first year, second year, third year lawyers uh, with lawyers who've been out five, four or five, uh, six years. And they can do it on, on a very cost effective way in order to make uh, profit for themselves, but provide really, really great uh, service. So, so yes, I, I'm actually very buoyant and optimistic. And I think there is a future for young lawyers. I think the future needs to be re-envisioned, uh, rethought, rather than just trying to tread the path that the older lawyers did. So thank you so much, Joel, for your insight and your experience and uh, really inspiring our listeners today to think outside of the box. So thank you so much for your time and joining us today. It was a pleasure. Pleasure, Janet. I wish you and everybody who's uh, listening the very, very best in their legal careers. And uh, I hope I said nothing to turn anybody away from family law. It's, it's a stimulating, satisfying practice that really invite people to give serious thought to. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career advancing advice, right to your earbuds.